This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. The thing I wanted to talk about is um, this issue that everyone's been discussing of uh, chain migration. Uh-huh. And not so much the concept itself, although you kind of need that for background, but the way that social scientists have been discussing it. Although it's also interesting how politicians have been discussing it. So uh, it, there's it basically, you know, the the uh, immigration restrictionist side has taken up this term of uh, chain migration and used it more or less as a synonym for family reunification visas. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially extended kin. Uh, it, no, there's no nobody's proposing to get rid of um, visas for minor children and spouses, but um, you do have a lot of people who want to reduce visas for you know adult siblings, parents, um, that sort of thing. And Donald Trump made that point last night. Well, it doesn't surprise me because it's a very consistent uh, argument for, and and you very often hear this among the restrictionists referred to as end chain migration. Uh, but, you know, and so kind of in reaction to this, you see, uh, you know, a lot of people on the left uh, taking up this position of, oh, chain migration is this horrible term and nobody should use it. And, uh, and including in that is you see a lot of social scientists saying that. So like Russell Sage Foundation had this tweet today. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday the 31st, um, you know, uh, talking about an op-ed that a scholar associated with them had uh, put out saying that like, you know, oh, chain migration is part of this like term of rhetoric. And this actually is part of this guy's expertise. But, uh, you know, what, you know, people have pointed out before is that the term chain migration was not invented by immigration restrictionists two years ago. It was invented, right? It was a term coined by immigration scholars uh, in the mid 20th century. And all of us learned it in grad school, right? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, we studied with uh, Doug Massey and Alex Portes, especially Doug Massey. And fundamentally, that's what Doug Massey does, right? He studies chain migration. Um, No, I I do think it's fair to point out that uh, chain migration, that first of all, uh, you know, if you want to point out that there's various uh, good things about chain migration, great, go ahead and do so. Like uh, I was talking to Kieran Healy and he said that, it, you know, he pointed out that um, traditionally this was seen as like a source of social cohesion. Mm-hmm. Good, good point. Right. Point that out. Um, and uh, and then likewise, I think it's also well worth pointing out that the term has gotten changed in its political usage. So um, in its original in its original scholarly usage. Uh, the term meant any migration that is made more likely because of social networks. And this, it, whereas in its current political usage, it means family reunification visas. Um, and that is a difference because you can have, it, it, I think it's fair to say that family reunification visas are a subset of chain migration. Uh, almost by definition, they have to involve chain migration, but chain migration can al- involve a lot more than that. So if I leave UCLA and go to the University of Toronto. And then the next week, I call my brother and say, man, Toronto's the greatest city in North America. You'd love it here. You should you should come there. Uh, Canada doesn't have visas for me to sponsor you as an adult sibling, but they do have skill-based visas based on points. And you speak English, you're a college graduate, you're middle-aged. So apply, and I think you have enough points that you could get into Canada on the skill-based system. That would still be chain migration, um, 
even though it doesn't involve a family visa, because my brother migrating to Canada uh, would be uh, made more likely by me migrating to Canada. So uh, in the scholarly usage, there is a difference. I think it is fair to say that family reunification visas are a subset. And I think it would be entirely fair for people to point that out. And I have pointed that out. But what drives me fucking crazy mm-hmm. is people acting, people who ought to know better, uh, acting as if this is this horrible slur that was used yesterday, that was invented yesterday, and forgetting that, you know, this is a term that they've used themselves in its in its original meaning. So like Russell, uh, with Russell Sage, I checked. They published ten, 12 books about train migration. Well, you know what? So here's the thing. So I, so I'm kind of, I'm, so I'm going to kind of push back on that a little bit only because I actually think the reason why they're acting like this, that the chain migration, that term is a slur is because it is being used as kind of a slur, (laughs) right? And it's not, and it's like when we use it, we're using it to actually describe, right, this certain pattern of migration from one place to another, right, that relies sure. on on social, on, on basically, you know, social networks, right? Sure. Um, most of those networks are generally not familial, or, or at least not, you know, you know, not your parents and your kids and whatever, but like, you know, they're people from your hometown, your friends, that's your right. neighbors, et cetera, right? That's um, right. That's, that's I, I, I tried to clarify the original scholarly usage, but you're exactly right. It doesn't just refer to kin. It also refers to neighbors. Yeah. And so now, like, basically what, like with this sort of like, you know, political sleight of hand, basically there is kind, I think there is a conflation because, you know, because family reunification could be thought of as a subset of chain migration, I guess, if you're Mm -hmm. thinking that people are, you know, are, are sponsoring their second cousins and their cousins and blah, 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 blah. But very often when people um, sponsor their relatives, right? It's also, it's usually because those relatives also help to support them and the work that they're doing here. Like I remember in grad school, mm-hmm. you know, living in, but living over there in Butler. Is that where we yeah. lived? Yeah. In, in but- yeah, I was like, Butler. I was like, what it was called living yeah. in Butler. I mean, there were quite a few, Uh, quite a few of my neighbors were Chinese grad students. um, And, you know, and there would be a, and they were couples, right. And they would have their first baby. And then, and because they like, they both worked in labs, it was really necessary. I mean, how else are you going to pay for childcare Right yeah. when you're living in Butler, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, and, and, yeah. those of you who didn't go to uh, grad school at Princeton in the early aughts, you should have seen the gardens these <laughs> Chinese grandparents made. I mean, they would build like lattices, yep. and then they would have like things growing. They'd have a two-story garden. I don't know how that's possible, yep. but they 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 build like lattices, mm-hmm. and then they'd have things growing on top of the garden on the lattice. Uh, yeah, it was, was crazy. Quite- I mean, it was crazy. And so, number one, like, uh, like. Family unification, um, I think, number one, serves to help support um, immigrants who are here because of skills, right, or because they have a job, Mm -hmm. help support them in the work that they do to be these, like, effective, efficient, productive uh, citizens or citizens-to-be of this country. And number two, it also helps to ensure, I think, that that those migrants think of their uh, their status here as permanent right because i always thought that one of the things that that we 
thought we should be striving for in our immigration policy is that the immigrants who come here, uh, quote unquote, and to assimilate, right, and mm-hmm. will eventually become citizens, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, one of the ways to help ensure that that happens is if they have their family here with them, right? So there are mm-hmm. actually these incredibly beneficial reasons for promoting family unification. Wait, is that actually true empirically that, um, you know, having kin uh, in, you know, with you would help you assimilate? Because I, I kind of feel like, that, I mean, spousal visas aren't, um, it, nobody's really challenging those, but you would imagine that outmarriage would be a huge uh, contributor to assimilation. Uh, no, I, so I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's necessarily true. So, um, you know, I think about, so I think about the situation of, um, of the Chinese, right, in the 19th mm-hmm. century. Um, sure. And there were just dudes here, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And, and whatever. And they were like, mm-hmm. you know, we aren't, we are no longer able to naturalize, right? Uh, we aren't supposed to, there are prohibitions against us being with white women, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there were pockets of Chinese men who, who formed households with black women, right, in the South and in particular um, for a time because, you know, because they didn't have any other women. Um, Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of them, because of that, because they weren't able to naturalize, they weren't able to bring families over with them, just thought of themselves as, okay, we're just going to work here, we're going to try and save money, and then we're going to leave, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what most of them, that was the plan that most of them had. Now, once immigration laws change to then allow, you know, Asians to naturalize, right, and also to bring their family over, more and more we actually saw um, Asian communities actually becoming more part of the fabric of American life and less, you know, totally removed in their own ethnic enclaves, right, partly because, you know, at that point in time, there was also civil rights legislation that helped to um, to open up opportunities to them. Well, listen, I mean, everything you're saying is, um, and, I, and I think that's a very good point that, um, you know, when you allow uh, kinship-based migration, you know, uh, that this facilitates, uh, you know, long-term routes and, you know, at first it's going to create an ethnic enclave, but then in the long run, it'll probably create assimilation. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas uh, the alternative is realistically circular migration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, you know, putting that aside, everything you're saying is an argument for why family reunification is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have no problem with people arguing that. Right. And I, and I wish that's what... Um, you know, social scientists who favor family reunification were arguing. I wish they were basically making an argument on the merits instead of just saying this term is an illegitimate term <laughs> when we're the ones who coined it, right? <laughs> it, it's insulting, right? And it's like, right. yeah. And, don't you- and also, like, I've heard people say, like, well, the term meant something when we used it, and now it means something different when they use it. But they don't even mean it in the sense of, like, I, I was clarifying that it's it's a more generic process. It doesn't refer to a specific category of visa. Mm-hmm. It refers to a generic pattern of behavior, regardless of the type of visa. And this is why the um, the restriction slogan, end chain, chain migration, is absurd. Because even if we had a 100% skill-based system, we would still have chain migration. Yes. We have less of it, but, but we would still have chain migration. Um, it, it would, you know, just because 
you know, let's say it's all H-1Bs. I get an H-1B. I tell my lawyer, this is the recruiter I worked with. This is what they want to see on your file. And then that makes it more likely, you know, to have chain migration. I have a colleague who studies, um, it's not H-1B, it's whatever the equivalent is for lower skilled workers. And, you know, that's, that involves a ton of uh, chain migration, even though it's a, uh, a work program, not a family reunification program yeah. in, the, in the technical sense. Yeah. Anyway, but my point is, you know, just don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining, right? <laughs> don't don't act like, you know, this is like an illegitimate term. <clears throat> and if you want to say, well, it's the way it's used in that it becomes associated with all these other terms, effectively, you're just saying, I don't like that perspective, mm-hmm. right? It's not really a problem with the term per right. se. It's just saying, I don't like this uh, political platform, the people who advocate it, whatever. And that's fine. But then you don't really have a problem with the term. You have a problem with the perspective. So basically from this conversation, like I can envision that one of the, so one of the unintended effects of ending quote unquote chain migration and turning this into sort of a skill-based immigration system is you would still have chain migration, but it would just, but it would be a lot harder for immigrants who are here to actually have family members here to help support them, right? And to be as effective as they've been in the past because they've had their moms come and take care of their kids. They've had their dads come and help them, you know, take care of the kids and help them fix the car and, and you know, and build the well, house. It, it would be Canada. Uh-huh. And, and my understanding is that, you know, can, Canada's policy is basically to have a huge amount of skill-based migration and minimal uh, family reunification uh, immigration. And my understanding is that um, Canadian migrants, uh, you know, who are brought in from their own skills, sometimes... Uh, you know, they wish that they could bring their parents in to help wash the, the grandkids and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I think, but, but the difference, you know, that's then, not the Canadian system. But the difference is the Canadian system has a much more generous uh, social safety net, right? But not that's for, sure, not not for, for child care, though, which I, and that's a pretty compelling argument. Uh, but, you know, Gabe, there are sometimes, what about that argument, though, that like the meaning has changed? Like, I'm I'm searching my mind for uh, words that were neutral that became sort of epithets with the uh, I have you know one. as I have time one. moved and on. And it's my banter. And, it's my banter. What? It's gentrification. <laughs> Great segue. Hey, well, wait. Let's get hold on. Let's do it a no, moment. No, for no, the no, no. We don't need it. Music. We don't need the guitar. You know, here all the do 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 do. Okay, now Leslie, tell us about gentrification. <laughs> go, right. Leslie, go. All right. So, you know, I'm not a gentrification scholar. And so, you know, those of you who are listening out there who are, right, you know what I mean? If you want to blast me on this, go ahead. But my understanding <laughs> um, of the word gentrification, right? I mean, so um, the literature on gentrification comes from the UK. Right, um, and I and, and it comes from research that basically looked at neighborhoods that were inhabited by working class families, um, and noted the ways in which uh, w- uh, lower middle and uh, middle and upper middle class uh, families and individuals started moving into those working class neighborhoods, and basically over time 
because, you know, rent and, you know, and the cost of owning your home became so expensive, um, displacing those working class inhabitants, right? The word gentrification has at its root um, the word gentry, right? So it's all, it's very, very class specific, right? Um, fast forward from the 1960s to the 1990s here in the United States, when we use the word gentrification, it's about neighborhood change, right? But very often, even though we understand that there was a class component to it, because of course we're here in the United States, um, you know, it, we can't, we only thing we actually really seem to see is race, right? So race is the primary component. That's how we know uh, uh, a neighborhood is gentrifying, right? Is that white mm-hmm. people show up in a place that previously had almost only black and or Latino residents, right? Um, and so, so there's that. And now I was reading this piece in the New York Times magazine on Sunday um, uh, that basically says that now gentrification isn't just about neighborhoods anymore, but it's being used to describe everything from mobile homes to sandwiches, right? So Mm -hmm. how can a sandwich become gentrified, right? That's Well, it it has a holy instead of uh, mayonnaise. (laughs) Right, and so I mean, I just want to. So I want to read just a little bit uh, of this piece for you. Um, It says, "Blah blah blah." What what do I think is great? A recent article in the New Republic by Sarah Jones connected tiny houses to two other lifestyle trends: raw water, unfiltered drinking water, and hashtag van life, (laughs) living in a van. But on Instagram, those who collect their drinking water, Jones writes, have adopted a hardship that poor people suffer and stripped it of its association with poverty. She adds, raw water is a way of gentrifying that poverty. Right? So that, so I found that to be fascinating. The poor are still gentrification's victims, but in this new meaning, the harm is not rent increases and displacement. It's something psychic, a theft of pride. Right? And, um, the phenomena it describes seems inescapable, but there's something in this new usage that obfuscates as much as it reveals, lending cover to the much larger forces that shape our lives. Minority communities are being dismantled as macroeconomic winds transform urban America. Researchers are now concerned that the high cost of housing is a drag on our whole economy, with young people either trapped or spending too much on rent or fleeing overheated urban markets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them are now living in vans, right? Um, and so I found this to be a very, very fascinating move, right, in the use of the uh, of the term gentrification, right? Um, I felt I felt as though for a very long time when people wrote about or we read about gentrification, right, it all had to do with the material. It all had to do with rents. It all had to do with space. It all had to do with displacement, right? And now there's this use mm-hmm. of the word gentrification that in many ways ob- like doesn't even talk about that at all. But it's all about, it seems like, I know, I know we don't like to use this term in sociology, but it's all about cultural appropriation. It's like conceptual inflation. It's sort of it's very it's very it's very similar to uh, Gabriel's topic, right? You have a you have a very specific uh, concept has a very specific meaning, and then just everybody sort of slaps their latest 
story idea or blog post idea. Uh, they slap the concept onto it uh, to make it feel current. Yeah. And it loses meaning. Like neoliberalism or... Yeah, it's, it's, I'm just struck by, you said, like, I know we don't like to talk about this in uh, sociology, but cultural appropriation, because that's the kind of thing that I, you're totally right. But if you asked anybody on the street, what do sociologists talk about? They probably, <laughs> it's like, like, like people don't understand that, like, no, 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 that's for like, you know, there's some crank at the school of education who talks like that. But, you know, <laughs> sociologists are all about like, you know, how do we get the standard error right in our regression, you know? Uh, are you sure about that? Let's pause, let's just yeah. put a bookmark well, on I'm that. I'm sure to, with enough work, uh, I could find some sociologist who's you know. Well, I think there's a there's an elite culture and sort of a more pop culture within the discipline. Oh, that's true. I agree. You know, and maybe you don't see it at the top yeah. fifty or so schools, but there's how many departments are there in the country? There's probably a thousand. You know? Yeah, yeah. But anyhow, I didn't mean to detain you on your point. No, no, but I, I like I, uh, I mean, taking it seriously, right? I, I think that mostly has a point that it's not just about housing prices; it's also about you know kind of cultural amenities that make neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my favorite documentaries, which unfortunately is impossible to find, so I feel weird about recommending it, is uh, called "People Like Us." Uh huh. I own it. I it? own it. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, so Leslie will be able to enjoy this. Everybody else will just have to either know me or Leslie and be able to borrow a copy. Uh, so this is a documentary that was on PBS around 2004, uh, maybe a little earlier. And, um, you know, they, they went through it. It's like just talking about class culture. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely fascinating because you see, like, what people really get mad about is uh, – kind of social class taste markers, like cultural capital fundamentally is what people mm-hmm. talk about. And so there's this, uh, like the first segment is about, uh, I think it's Burlington, Vermont. It's some town in Vermont. And they're trying to decide, is it like the grocery store closes and they're trying to decide what um, mm-hmm. whether they should get the license to the Shaw's, which is kind of the New England version of Ralph's or Piggly Wiggly or whatever. And, or if they should give it to, and I'm not making this up, the Onion River Food Co-op. Uh-huh. And so they're, <laughs> they're, they're trying to decide whether to, you know, I, I don't, I have no idea why this was a political decision and not just who offered the landlord the most lease, but uh, the city council decided to give it the, uh, you know, the space to the Onion River Food Co-op. And so you have all the working class people in there talking about like, they don't want to eat a bunch of tofu and, mm-hmm. and they, they just feel like socially excluded from, you know, this organic uh, food co-op type place um and so it was just like this great illustration of how uh stations about place and neighborhood and whatever are very often about kind of cultural capital and uh people feeling that they don't belong or aren't welcome because the amenities that are available are the kind of things that they feel is are designed and intended for people other well you know what so i think that that's part of the story where it comes to where culture comes in but there's the other part where people come in right and they see right that you uh you have this chopped cheese sandwich in your bodega which costs four dollars right and they're like you know what let's open up a whole foods and let's have a version of your chopped cheese from the bodega in whole foods for eight dollars right and meanwhile your bodega is priced out of the market. And so if you want to chop cheese, you got to make it yourself or you got to go to the Whole Foods because that's now the only the only game in town. So you took my thing, 
right? You took my thing, you made it impossible for me to provide it in my space, right? And now you have it and it's twice as expensive, right? What the hell is chopped cheese? Well, it's like ground, it's like a, it's like a sandwich with like ground beef with cheese melted on top of it. I've never heard of this. Uh, I don't know if it's because I'm upper middle class or because I'm from California. No, it's or a Bronx. It's like it's a New York thing. It's like a Bronx. It's a Bronx bodega thing. Yeah, I didn't remember if it was B side or ours, but there was one uh, of our uh, our episodes when um, you know you said something about somebody being online uh-huh. and <laughs> not to refer to the internet, but to refer to like you know waiting online at the deli. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Leslie's in New York. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I think those are things, I think these are things that I'd like to, to see a little bit more merge together. Right. I mean, there are costs to gentrification, right. At that aren't, that aren't mm-hmm. just material, right. They're psychic. Mm-hmm. Right. And can, you know, can we see more work that deals with both? Right. Or, or that understands that both things happen at once. So much of, I feel like so much of what I see that has to do with culture and gentrification talks about how gentrifiers create culture in those spaces, right? As though those spaces were devoid of culture to begin with, number one. And number two, as though gentrifiers didn't inhabit those spaces in part because of the culture that existed there, right? And whatever culture may be coming out of or emerging from these spaces once we have this demographic change, right? it's at least in part informed by the culture that was there before the gentrifiers came. Yeah. It's funny that you talk about like the, this, you know, more dominant literature on like gentrifiers creating culture. Cause like uh, this whole literature on like how arts build communities and you know, that like art galleries are like a leading indicator of rising neighborhood values. Mm-hmm. That's basically just a positive uh, interpretation of the same yep. issue. If only we had, cool. if only we had an urban sociologist here today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if only. Get your flu shots. People. Yeah. yeah, get your flu shots. I had that. Oh, flu no. it was awful. Yeah. We're, so, oh, Gabe. Yeah. Uh, but we're looking. We're looking forward to her being yes. on. We're not. Uh, not that she's not here. We're looking forward to it. No, no, we're genuinely concerned. Yeah. It's just a podcast. Well, I, it's a flu. I mean, she doesn't have consumption. <laughs> You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury and Liseth Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>